Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and we've got two new O. Henrys for you. The first one's called The Making of a New Yorker, and the second, Vanity and Some Sables. I think you'll enjoy them both. The Making of a New Yorker by O. Henry Besides many other things, Raggles was a poet. He was called a tramp, but that was only an elliptical way of saying that he was a philosopher, an artist, a traveler, a naturalist, and the discoverer. But most of all, he was a poet. In all his life, he never wrote a line of verse. He lived his poetry. His odyssey would have been a limerick had it been written. But to linger with the primary proposition, Raggles was a poet. Raggles's specialty, had he been driven to ink and paper, would have been sonnets to the cities. He studied cities as women study their reflections in mirrors as children study the glue and sawdust of a dislocated doll, as the men who write about wild animals study the cages in the zoo. <coughs> a city to Raggles was not merely a pile of bricks and mortar, peopled by a certain number of inhabitants. It was a thing with a soul characteristic and distinct, an individual conglomeration of life with its own peculiar essence, flavor, and feeling. Two thousand miles to the north and south, east and west, Raggles wandered in poetic fervor, taking the cities to his breast. He footed it on dusty roads, or sped magnificently in freight cars, counting time as of no account. And when he had found the heart of a city and listened to its secret confessions, he strayed on, restless, to another. Fickle Raggles! But perhaps he had not met the civic corporation that could engage and hold his critical fancy. Through the ancient poets we have learned that cities are feminine, so they were to poet Raggles, and his mind carried a concrete and clear conception of the figure that symbolized and typified each one that he had wooed. Chicago seemed to swoop down upon him with a breezy suggestion of Mrs. Partington, plumes and patchouli, and to disturb his rest with a soaring and beautiful song of future promise. But Raggles would awake to a sense of shivering cold and a haunting impression of ideals lost in a depressing aura of potato salad and fish. Thus Chicago affected him. Perhaps there is a vagueness and inaccuracy in the description, but that's Raggles' fault. 
"'He should have recorded his sensations in magazine poems.' Pittsburgh impressed him as the play of Othello performed in the Russian language in a railroad station by Doc Stater's minstrels. A royal and generous lady, this Pittsburgh, though, homely, hearty, with a flushed face, washing the dishes in a silk dress and white kid slippers, and bidding Raggles sit before the roaring fireplace and drink champagne with his pig's feet and fried potatoes. New Orleans had simply gazed down upon him from a balcony. He could see her pensive, starry eyes and catch the flutter of her fan, and that was all. Only once he came face to face with her. It was at dawn, when she was flushing the red bricks of the banquette with a pail of water. She laughed and hummed a chansonette and filled Raggles' shoes with ice-cold water. Allons! Boston construed herself to the poetic Raggles in an erratic and singular way. It seemed to him that he had drunk cold tea and that the city was a white, cold cloth that had been bound tightly around his brow to spur him to some unknown but tremendous mental effort. And, after all, he came to shovel snow for a livelihood, and the cloth, becoming wet, tightened its knots and could not be removed. Indefinite and unintelligible ideas, you will say, but your disapprobation should be tempered with gratitude, for these are poets' fancies, and suppose you had come upon them in verse. One day Raggles came and laid siege to the heart of the great city of Manhattan. She was the greatest of all, and he wanted to learn her note in the scale to taste and appraise and classify and solve and label her and arrange her with other cities that had given him up the secret of their individuality. And here we cease to be Raggles' translator and become his chronicler. Raggles landed from a ferryboat one morning and walked into the core of the town with the blasé air of a cosmopolite. He was dressed with care to play the role of an unidentified man. No country, race, class, clique, union party clan, or bowling association could have claimed him. His clothing, which had been donated to him piecemeal by citizens of different height, but same number of inches around the heart, was not yet as comfortable to his figure as those specimens of raiment, self-measured, that are railroaded to you by transcontinental tailors with a suitcase, suspenders, silk handkerchief, and pearl studs as a bonus. Without money, as a poet should be, but with the ardor of an astronomer discovering a new star in the course of the Milky Way, or a man who has seen ink suddenly flow from his fountain pen, Raggles wandered into the great city. Late in the afternoon he drew out of the roar and commotion with a look of dumb terror on his countenance. He was defeated, puzzled, discomfited, frightened. Other cities had been to him as long primer to read, as country maidens quickly to fathom, as send price of subscription with answer rebuses to solve, as oyster cocktails to swallow. But here was one as cold, "'glittering, serene, impossible as a four-carat diamond in a window "'to a lover outside fingering damply in his pocket his ribbon-counter salary. "'The greetings of other cities he had known, "'their homespun kindliness, their human gamut of rough charity, "'friendly curses, garrulous curiosity, "'and easily estimated credulity or indifference. "'This city of Manhattan gave him no clue. "'It was walled against him.' Like a river of adamant, it flowed past him in the streets. Never an eye was turned upon him. No voice spoke to him. His heart yearned for the clap of Pittsburgh's sooty hand on his shoulder, for Chicago's menacing but social yawp in his ear, for the paired Ella Emosadary stare through the Bostonian eyeglass, even for the precipitate but unmalicious boot toe of Louisville or St. Louis. On Broadway, Raggles, successful suitor of many cities, 
stood bashful like any country swain. For the first time he experienced the poignant humiliation of being ignored, and when he tried to reduce this brilliant, swiftly changing, ice-cold city to a formula, he failed utterly. Poet though he was, it offered him no color similes, no points of comparison, no flaw in its polished facets, no handle by which he could hold it up and view its shape and structure, as he familiarly and often contemptuously had done with other towns. The houses were interminable ramparts loopholed for defense. The people were bright but bloodless specters passing in sinister and selfish array. The thing that weighed heaviest on Raggles' soul and clogged his poet's fancy was a spirit of absolute egotism that seemed to saturate the people as toys are saturated with paint. Each one that he considered appeared a monster of abominable and insolent conceit. Humanity was gone from them. They were toddling idols of stone and varnish, worshipping themselves, and greedy for, though oblivious of, worship from their fellow graven images. Frozen, cruel, implacable, impervious, cut to an identical pattern, they hurried on their ways like statues brought by some miracle's demotion, while soul and feeling lay unaroused in the reluctant marble. Gradually Raggles became conscious of certain types. One was an elderly gentleman with a snow-white, short beard, pink on a wrinkled face, and stony, sharp blue eyes, attired in the fashion of a gilded youth, who seemed to personify the city's wealth, ripeness, and frigid unconcern. Another type was a woman, tall, beautiful, clear as a steel engraving, goddess-like, calm, clothed like the princesses of old, with eyes as coldly blue as the reflection of sunlight on a glacier. And another was a byproduct of this town of marionettes, a broad, swaggering, grim, threateningly sedate fellow, with a jowl as large as a harvested wheat field, the complexion of a baptized infant, and the knuckles of a prize-fighter. This type leaned against cigar signs and viewed the world with frappéed contumely. A poet is a sensitive creature, and Raggles soon shriveled in the bleak embrace of the undecipherable. The chill, sphinx-like, ironical, illegible, unnatural, ruthless expression of the city left him downcast and bewildered. Had it no heart? Better the woodpile, the scolding of vinegar-faced housewives at back doors, the kindly spleen of bartenders behind provincial free-lunch counters, the amicable truculence of rural constables, the kicks, arrests, and happy-go-lucky chances of the other vulgar, loud, crude cities than this freezing heartlessness. Raggles summoned his courage and sought alms from the populace. Unheeding, regardless, they passed on without the wink of an eyelash to testify that they were conscious of his existence. And then he said to himself that this fair but pitiless city of Manhattan was without a soul, that its inhabitants were mannequins moved by wires and springs, and that he was alone in a great wilderness. Raggles started across the street. There was a blast, a roar, a hissing, and a crash as something struck him and hurled him over and over six yards from where he'd been. As he was coming down like the stick of a rocket, the earth and all the cities thereof turned to a fractured dream. Raggles opened his eyes. First an odor made itself known to him, an odor of the earliest spring flowers of paradise, and then a hand soft as a falling petal touched his brow. Bending over him was a woman clothed like the princess of old, with blue eyes, now soft and humid with human sympathy. Under his head on the pavement were silks and furs. With Raggles's hat in his hand, and with his face pinker than ever from a vehement burst of oratory against reckless driving, stood the elderly gentleman who personified the city's wealth and ripeness. 
from a nearby cafe hurried the byproduct with the vast jowl and baby complexion, bearing a glassful of crimson fluid that suggested delightful possibilities. Drink this, sport, said the byproduct, holding the glass to Rigels's lips. Hundreds of people huddled around in a moment, their faces wearing the deepest concern. Two flattering and gorgeous policemen got into the circle and pressed back the overplus of Samaritans. An old lady in a black shawl spoke loudly of camphor. A newsboy slipped one of his papers beneath Raggles's elbow, where it lay on the muddy pavement. A brisk young man with a notebook was asking for names. A bell clanged importantly, and the ambulance cleaned a lane through the crowd. A cool surgeon slipped into the midst of affairs. "'How do you feel, old man?' asked the surgeon, stooping easily to his task. The princess of silks and satins wiped a red drop or two from Raggles's brow with a fragrant cobweb. "'Me?' said Raggles, with a seraphic smile. "'I feel fine.' He had found the heart of his new city. In three days they let him leave his cot for the convalescent ward in the hospital. He had been in there an hour when the attendants heard sounds of conflict. Upon investigation they found that Raggles had assaulted and damaged a brother convalescent, a glowering transient whom a freight train collision had sent in to be patched up. "'What's all this about?' inquired the head nurse. "'He was running down me town,' said Raggles. "'What, what town?' asked the nurse. "'New York,' said Raggles. "'We'll return with our second O. Henry story right after these sponsor messages.' "'When you make decisions for your company, you always look for the no-brainers. "'And if you have a lot of mailing and shipping to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. "'It streamlines your process to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. "'Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, books, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com.' Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart if you sell online, schedule package pickups through the dashboard, and automatically see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers, with rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are, even on the go. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other business decision makers with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. And now, Vanity and Some Sables, by O. Henry. When Kid Brady was sent to the ropes by Molly McKeever's blue-black eyes, he withdrew from the stovepipe gang. So much for the power of a Colleen's blander in tongue and stubborn true-heartedness. If you are a man who read this, may such an influence be sent you before two o'clock tomorrow. If you are a woman, may your Pomeranian greet you this morning with a cold nose, a sign of dog health and your happiness. The Stovepipe Gang borrowed its name from a sub-district of the city called the Stovepipe, which is a narrow and natural extension of the familiar district known as Hell's Kitchen. The stovepipe strip of town runs along 11th to 12th avenues on the river and bends a hard and sooty elbow around little, lost, homeless DeWitt Clinton Park. Consider that a stovepipe is an important factor in any kitchen, and the situation is analyzed. The chefs in Hell's Kitchen are many, and the stovepipe gang wears the cordon bleu. The members of this uncharted but widely known brotherhood appeared to pass their time on street corners arrayed like the lilies of the conservatory and busy with nail files and penknives. Thus displayed as a guarantee of good faith, 
they carried on an innocuous conversation in a 200-word vocabulary, to the casual observer as innocent and immaterial as that herding clubs seven blocks to the east. But off exhibition, the stovepipes were not mere street-corner ornaments addicted to posing and manicuring. Their serious occupation was the separating of citizens from their coin and valuables. Preferably this was done by weird and singular trips without noise or bloodshed. But whenever the citizen honored by their attentions refused to impoverish himself gracefully, his objections came to be spread finally upon some police station blotter or hospital register. The police held the stovepipe gang in perpetual suspicion and respect. As the nightingale's liquid note is heard in the deepest shadows, so along the stovepipe's dark and narrow confines, the whistle for reserves punctures the dull ear of night. Whenever there was smoke in the stovepipe, the tasseled men in blue knew that there was a fire in Hell's Kitchen. Kid Brady promised Molly to be good. Kid was the vainest, the strongest, the wariest, and the most successful blotter in the gang. Therefore, the boys were sorry to give him up. But they witnessed his fall to a virtuous life without protest. For in the kitchen, it is considered neither unmanly nor improper for a guy to do as his girl advises. Blacken her eye for love's sake, if you will. But it is all to the good business to do a thing when she wants you to do it. Turn off the hydrant, said the kid one night, when Molly, tearful, besought him to amend his ways. I'm going to cut out the gang. You for mine, and the simple life on the side. I'll tell you, Mal, I'll get work, and in a year we'll get married. I'll do it for you. We'll get a flat and a flute, and a sewing machine, and a rubber plant, and live as honest as we can. Oh, kid! "'sighed Molly, wiping the powder off his shoulder with her handkerchief. "'I'd rather hear you say that than to own all of New York, "'and we can be happy on so little.' "'The kid looked down at his speckless cuffs and shining patent leathers "'with a suspicion of melancholy. "'It'll hurt hardest in the rags department,' said he. "'I've kind of always liked to rig out swell when I could. "'You know how I hate cheap things, Mall. "'This suit set me back sixty-five. "'Anything in the wearing apparel line has got to be just so.' "'or to the misfit parlors for it, for mine. "'If I work, I won't have so much coin to hand over "'to the little man with the big shears.' "'Never mind, kid. "'I like you just as much in a blue jumper "'as I would in a red automobile.' "'Before the kid had grown large enough "'to knock out his father, "'he had been compelled to learn the plumber's art. "'So now back to this honorable and useful profession "'he returned. "'But it was as an assistant that he engaged himself, "'and it is the master plumber, and not the assistant,' "'who wears diamonds as large as hailstones "'and looks contemptuously upon the marble colonnades "'of Senator Clark's mansion. Eight months went by as smoothly and surely "'as though they had elapsed on a theater program. "'The kid worked away at his pipes and solder "'with no symptoms of backsliding. "'The stovepipe gang continued its piracy on the high avenues, "'cracked policemen's heads, held up late travelers, "'invented new methods of peaceful plundering, "'copied Fifth Avenue's cut of clothes and neckwear fancies "'and comported itself according to its lawless bylaws. "'But the kid stood firm and faithful to his molly, "'even though the polish was gone from his fingernails, "'and it took him fifteen minutes to tie his purple silk ascot "'so that the worn places wouldn't show. "'One evening he brought a mysterious bundle with him to Molly's house. "'Open that, Molly,' he said in his large, quiet way. "'It's for you.' "'Molly's eager fingers tore off the wrappings. "'She shrieked aloud.' and in rushed a sprinkling of little McKeevers, and Ma McKeever, dishwashy, dishwashy, but an undeniable relative of the late Mrs. Eve. Again Molly shrieked, and something dark and long and sinuous flew and enveloped her neck like an anaconda. Russian sables, said the kid, pridefully, 
"'enjoying the sight of Molly's round cheek against the clean fur. "'The real thing. "'They don't grow anything in Russia too good for you, Moll.' "'Molly plunged her hands into the muff, "'overturned a row of the family infants, and flew to the mirror. "'Hint for the beauty column. "'To make bright eyes, rosy cheeks, and a bewitching smile. "'Recipe, one set Russian sables. "'Apply.' When they were alone, Molly became aware of a small cake of the ice of common sense floating down the full tide of her happiness. "'You're a bird, all right, kid,' she admitted gratefully. "'I never had any furs on before in my life, but ain't Russian sables awful expensive? Seems to me I heard they were.' "'Have I ever chucked any bargain-sale stuff at you, Ma?' asked the kid, with calm dignity. "'Did you ever notice me leaning on the remnant counter or peering in the window of a five-and-ten?' "'Call that scarf 250 and the muff 175, "'and you won't make any mistake about the price of Russian sables. "'The swell goods for me. "'Say they look fine on you, Maul.' "'Molly hugged the sables to her bosom in rapture, "'and then her smile went away little by little, "'and she looked the kid straight in the eye, sadly and steadily. "'He knew what every look of hers meant, "'and he laughed with a faint flush upon his face. "'Got it out,' he said, with affectionate roughness. I told you I was done with that. I bought him and paid for him, all right, with my own money. Out of the money you work for, kid? Out of $75 a month? Sure, I've been saving up. Let's see. You saved 425 in eight months, kid? Ah, let up, said the kid, with some heat. I had some money when I went to work. Do you think I've been holding him up again? I told you I'd quit. They're paid for on the square. Put them on and come out for a walk. Molly calmed her doubts. Sables are soothing. Proud as a queen, she went forth in the streets at the kid's side. In all that region of low-lying streets, Russian sables had never been seen before. The word sped, and doors and windows blossomed with heads eager to see the swell furs Kid Brady had given his girl. All down the street there were oohs and ahs, and the reported fabulous sum paid for the sables was passed from lip to lip, increasing as it went. At her right elbow sauntered the kid with the air of princes. Work had not diminished his love of pomp and show and his passion for the costly and genuine. On a corner they saw a group of the stovepipe gang loafing, immaculate. They raised their hats to the kid's girl and went on with their calm, unaccented blabber. Three blocks behind the admired couple strolled Detective Ransom of the central office. Ransom was the only detective on the force who could walk abroad with safety in the stovepipe district. He was fair-dealing and unafraid, and went there with the hypothesis that the inhabitants were human. Many liked him, and now and then one would tip off to him something that he was looking for. "'What's the excitement down the street?' asked Ransom of a pale youth in a red sweater. "'Dare out rubbering at a set of buffalo robes Kid Brady staked his girl with,' answered the youth. "'Some say pay nine hundred for the skins.' "'They're swell all right enough. "'I hear Brady's been working at his old trade for nearly a year.' "'said the detective. "'He doesn't travel with the gang anymore, does he?' "'Yeah, he's working all right,' said the red sweater. "'But, say, sport, are you trailing anything in the fur line? "'A job in the plumbing shop don't match with them skins the kid's girls got on.' "'Ransom overtook the strolling couple on an empty street near the river bank. "'He touched the kid's arm from behind. "'I'd like to see you for a moment, Brady,' he said quietly. His eye rested for a second on the long fur scarf thrown stylishly back over Molly's left shoulder. The kid, with his old-time police-hating frown on his face, stepped a yard or two aside with the detective. "'Did you go to Miss Hethcoats on West 76th Street yesterday to fix a leaky water pipe?' 
asked Ransom. I did, said the kid. What of it? The lady's $1,000 set of Russian sables went out of the house about the same time you did. The description fits the ones this lady is wearing. You don't know what you're talking about, cried the kid angrily. You know I've cut out that sort of thing, Ransom. I bought them sables yesterday at... The kid stopped short. I know you've been working straight lately, said Ransom. I'll give you every chance. I'll go with you where you say you bought the furs and investigate. The lady can wear them along with us, and nobody will be on. That's fair, Brady. Come on, agreed the kid hotly, and then he stopped suddenly in his tracks and looked with an odd smile at Molly's distressed and anxious face. No use, he said grimly. They're the head coat sables, all right. You'll have to turn them over, Moll, but they ain't too good for you if they cost a million. Molly, with anguish in her face, hung upon the kid's arm. Oh, kid, you broke my heart, she said. I was so proud of you. "'And now they'll do you. "'And where's our happiness gone?' "'Go home,' said the kid, wildly. "'Come on, Ransom. "'Take the furs. "'Let's get away from here. "'Wait a minute. "'I've a good mind to... "'No, I'll be damned if I could do it. "'Run along, Mull. "'I'm ready, Ransom.' "'Around the corner of a lumber yard "'came Policeman Cohen on his way to his beat along the river. "'The detective signed to him for assistance. "'Cohen joined the group.' Ransom explained. "'Sure,' said Cohen. "'I hear about those sables that was stole. "'You say you had them here?' Policeman Cohen took the end of Molly's late scarf in his hands and looked at it closely. "'Once,' he said. "'I sold furs in Sixth Avenue. "'Yes, these are sables. "'They come from Alaska. "'This scarf is worth twelve, and this muff.' "'Biff!' came the palm of the kid's powerful hand upon the policeman's mouth. Cohen staggered and rallied. Molly screamed. The detective threw himself upon Brady, and with Cohen's aids got the nippers on his wrist. The scarf is vart twelve dollars, and the muff is vart nine dollars, persisted the policeman. But is this talk about one thousand dollars saples? The kid sat upon a pile of lumber, and his face turned dark red. Correct, Salomonsky, he declared viciously. I paid twenty-one dollars and fifty cents for the set. I'd rather have got six months and not have told it. Me, the swell guy that wouldn't look at anything cheap. I'm a plain bluffer. Moll, my salary couldn't spell sables in Russian. Molly cast herself upon his neck. What do I care for all the sables and money in the world? She cried. It's my kitty I want. Oh, you dear, stuck-up, crazy blockhead. You could take those nippers off, said Cohen to the detective. Before I leave the station... The report come in that the lady Vinder Saples, hanging in her wardrobe. Young man, I excuse you that punch in my face. This one time. Ransom handed Molly her furs. Her eyes were smiling upon the kid. She wound the scarf and threw the end over her left shoulder with a duchess's grace. A couple of young fools, said Policeman Cohen to Ransom. Come on, Avey. Thanks for joining us for these two great O. Henry stories. If you enjoy our show, please do stop and send us a review, especially you Apple listeners, for 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. We appreciate that very much, and it helps new listeners find us. We do have some wonderful new reviews I'd like to share with you. The first one, five stars. Love these classics. I have so little time to devote to read these timeless stories, and now I have an amazing door into the classics chosen and read by John, a terrific storyteller and a wonderful host. I'm sold. 
down from Nana Grape, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, awesome stories, five stars. Love this podcast. I've been searching for a show with classic stories. This collection is an answer to my prayers. The host is a great storyteller, and you can tell he puts a lot of effort into the production. Thank you so much. Down from BV2447, Apple Podcast, U.S. Thanks so very much for sharing these reviews. They're greatly appreciated. We'll return next Sunday evening with a brand new story. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.